Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 183, Caught Up in Our Own Little World. This week we're discussing season 6, episode 17 of Buffy, Normal Again, and season 3, episode 3 of Battlestar Galactica, Exodus, part 1. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right, starting with Buffy, uh, again, we had Buffy last week too, but we get two in a row um, before we go back to Angel. Um, Normal, again, is the episode this time. Um, And uh, I think last week, after we stopped recording, you uh, let me know that you were looking forward to this one because it was um, mind twisty or something to that effect. Um, and, you know... Uh, that sounds like pretty much what I would... It sounds about right. And um, yeah. I think we, we tend to uh, like those types of episodes. Like, often they end up being our favorite episodes. Whether or not they always are, I think they're often the most interesting to talk about the ones that kind of have some sort of high concept premise and like play with the, you know, um, outside the normal boundaries of the show and, um, definitely get into like, you know, metatextual things. Like we, I always like when Dr. Who does that and, you know, Buffy's mm-hmm. done that a couple times. So, um, yeah, looking forward to this one. Yeah. And I mean, even so if the story is good enough like it doesn't even have to be like like i don't like sort of the premise premisey stuff around mm-hmm. all this is pretty basic right like we'll get into like the demon and stuff but it's just like yeah demon comes pokes buffy in the arm and then like everything so it's like it's very sort of straightforward from a like strict plot perspective mm-hmm. and not much happens in that regard but you know i do f- like that it's like there's some interesting stuff with the you know mm-hmm. either the the hallucination or the real world depending on mm-hmm. which which and you know which side of it you end up taking uh, right right well and it's uh, i think it, it's a continuation of what is becoming like a subgenre of episode this season of the trio messes with buffy in some way. And like right. these are often, you know, getting to be like the the monster of the week is often kind of conjured or sent after to, to harass Buffy, you know, because of the trio, you know. And so like this is a kind of continuation of that idea. Um, although this is probably one of the more challenging ones like part of the trio is sometimes showing their kind of patheticness at times or kind of banality of them um but this one is one that actually um does some real kind of psychological damage and everything um so uh maybe even more than they realized it would do um yeah, so I kind of want to start with them because they are sort of behind the premise but don't actually come into the plot all that much. So I don't think we need to spend too much time on them. Um, but uh, it starts with Buffy 
you know, actively looking for them, crossing off, you know, houses on a list that have been recently rented. So she's trying to sort of track them down and figure out where they've gone to. And this is, of course, after they uh, were responsible for uh, the murder of um, Warren's ex-girlfriend. Um, so they're not only hiding from Buffy, they're hiding from the police and trying to sort of stay, you know, as low profile as they possibly can. Um, you know, down low, literally, as Andrew says, they like have a house and they're like living exclusively in the basement. Um, and so I kind of just wanted to check in with their dynamic because um, Warren is as if he wasn't already enough of a creep, um, is becoming more and more the kind of real, uh, you know, I don't know, festering part of this, you know, of, of this threesome. Uh, he's the sure. one who is not only kind of the most outwardly, you know, they all have pretensions to villainy, but he's the one that's actually, you know, pretty violent, pretty misogynistic, you know, uh, has, seems like the worst offender of them, um, you know, was responsible for, you know, trying to enslave and then killing his ex-girlfriend and then kind of making sure that the others were, you know, responsible enough that he would take them down with him. And now he's sort of convinced them to hide in this basement and is basically not letting them leave. Um, you know, he's sort of letting Andrew come along with him if he goes up to, like, do whatever, get supplies. Um, but Andrew doesn't seem that concerned yet, so he's not as much of a flight risk. Um, Jonathan is definitely getting freaked out and getting, you know, more and more nervous and wanting to go up and so of course warren is stopping him from doing that um mm -hmm. so he's not only a creep to all of the like regular people that he wants to dominate he's starting to become like you know the the you know control even like the other two and really not yeah. let them have any say in what they're doing or any choice in the matter so right right yeah and andrew's definitely more of the sort of sycophant right like right. okay like he's kind of perfectly fine with letting warren be right. the leader or whatever dictator you know of their little group right he's just um, sort of a follower whereas jonathan i mean we don't see a lot of it and like obviously we don't know what he's thinking because he never really expresses it here mm -hmm. but like you do kind of feel like jonathan has to know or remember like remember all of like season one and two when like Buffy saved you like every other yeah. week <laughs> like or every week even like you know there, there's got to be something going on in sort of the back of his mind there maybe with some of that like okay yeah. like yeah we had our fun but now you know maybe it's gone a little too far and, yeah. and that kind of thing but also he's seeing the creepiness that is Warren, right? Like mm -hmm. he wanted this woman and then killed her. And like, right. what's to say that can't happen to me. Whereas like Andrew doesn't seem to be that thoughtful about it. Right. Um, or if he is like, 
he's more forgiving maybe or more willing to believe that like it can't happen to him kind of thing right right um right yeah no jonathan definitely is picking up on that and um the warren is becoming more and more threatening i think in the way that he's running things of like you know the thing about like we're a team if something happens to you it happens to all of us right and it's like that's not friendly in the way it's meant to sound that's Mm. that's a threat you know that's a kind of like you know if if something happens to me i'm taking you down with me or you know um well and also where was that team attitude when just tim and andrew went out and secretly bought something we don't the stuff we don't know what the stuff is like where where's that team right you know right you know attitude in that case right well and even when jonathan says i haven't had a decent night's sleep since any kind of trails off like i even get like there's it could be either or both part of it seems okay he can't even really talk about what happened but part of me thinks is he allowed to talk about what happened you know because there's Mm -hmm. that kind of look from andrew or from warren and it seems like whether it's an unspoken rule or explicit or whatever there is a sort of sense of this subject is taboo like we can't if if we talk about it maybe under the pretense of saying we can't talk about it in case somebody's listening but suddenly it's a subject that even amongst ourselves we can't discuss it because that might implicate somebody or it brings up feelings of guilt that we don't want to you know indulge we want to mostly just pretend that Nothing happened. We got away with it. Just let it go. You know, don't mm-hmm. dwell on it. Um, and Jonathan obviously is dwelling on it. He just isn't allowed to speak openly about it. Um, right. So. So, yeah, um, maybe, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't we don't make a huge habit of trying to predict where things are going in, you know, these episodes, but like a little bit of dissent among the group, you know, Jonathan is sort of maybe primed and ready to, you know, get Buffy and her friends some sort of opening into, you know, this, this little team and especially Warren. Um, It would be good to see Jonathan come through and, you know, um, do the right thing for once. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, I mean, not for once. He's not done the right once, thing in the past. But again, well. again. <laughs> right. Right. And I mean, just throwing that out there, we're coming up, you know, this is episode 17 of the season. Right. So we've got the last five episodes here. Yeah. You know, coming up. And it's hard to think of the trio as the big bad of the season. But mm-hmm. like you said, like they're the ones who have been sort of pestering. Buffy all along so right you know right right so far they're the ones that are like you know kind of taking center stage and the recurring characters and 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 like I said like in this whether or not they realized how much damage it was it would do they actually do a fair amount of damage in this episode so there may be even more of a threat than they realize um you know, if they're looking to just sort of harass Buffy, 
you know, this certainly goes a lot further than that. Um, so they are getting into some dangerous, you know, I mean, not to mention that they killed someone already. So it's not like, right. it, it's right. not they're, like they're not they're capable legit, of it. Well, and they've stolen the diamond and, you right. know, like they, like they're legit criminals. Like this is, they've right. gone past the sort of where you can argue they're just, you know, boys being boys kind right. of stuff. Um, like there's a certain amount of mischief there where that might fly, even even in like the early 2000s, but like, or more mm-hmm. so perhaps in the early 2000s than now. But like at this point, you're you're beyond that. Like yeah. you you've killed someone, you've you've committed grand larceny. Like there's yeah, there's some serious stuff going down. Um, yeah. As yeah. as bumbling and sort of idiotic as they are. Right. Um, that's nonetheless the case. Yep. So. Yeah. Um, and I mean, so I guess the last thing to just mention is that, again, it is them who are responsible for the 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 demon that is the monster of the week, and you know Andrew specifically. Again, we see him as the the conjurer, the one who, you know, invokes and calls, you know, monsters and spirits and everything. Of that's mm-hmm. his his thing. Um. So, uh, you know, they see Buffy on the monitor and they say, Andrew, deploy your little friend. So the idea that they had this ready, this is sort of the next, if Buffy ever found them, this is the next thing that they have sort of up their sleeve waiting. Um, so, uh, yeah. So before we get to that demon that with its unpronounceable name that Xander can't say, and I definitely can't say, um, yeah, we know we know what it is. We don't a have to. Garble Goobud something. Yeah. Um uh I wanted to do the talk about the, just the the little dynamics of the other characters cuz you know, the main premise takes over most of the time, but we at least get some references to these other, you know, relationships. Um mm-hmm. So, um Willow and Tara um Willow definitely is feeling very encouraged by these, you know, recent conversations with Tara and where they've been friendly and Tara knows that she's been off magic now and is kind of, you know, happy and proud about that. They were, you know, doing some flirting at the wedding and that was going well. So you see Willow kind of practicing kind of asking her out again like not just practicing small talk but working up towards you know trying to start up the relationship um so she's sort of ready to jump right back in um only to see tara looking pretty familiar with somebody else um so which like we haven't had any real sense of like we've seen tara in the context of the scoobies like we've seen that mm-hmm. she's continued to have a relationship with Buffy and that they've been, you know, she's been helpful to Buffy and that she's been, you know, somewhat more warm to Willow, but we don't really see what Tara does when she's off by herself. Um, so, you know, kind of surprising to see that that's the case after they were kind of, you know, seeming to get closer again, but then, you know, why not? We know, we don't see what she does when she's off. So, you know, she's having her whole other life that we're not sort of 
privy to, sure. just like Willow. Um, so, you yeah. know, surprising, but it's not like, it, you don't want to think of it as like a betrayal or anything because they broke up and like, you know, there was and no, there was no sense of we're going to take a only, break in the friend's sense. You know, it right, was, right. it was a, it <laughs> was a breakup and you know. Well, not only that, but, but Tara is not the one at fault either. Right. right. So like. Like there would be no right. reason to expect that she would. Right, be she doesn't owe Willow hanging around anything. waiting yeah. for Willow because yeah. right. Willow's the one who messed up. Like Tara right. is perfectly legitimate right. to move on. I mean, they're right. they both would be legitimate to move on, but right. like Tara more so, even if that makes right. sense. Like, right. she wasn't at fault. She didn't do anything. She left because Willow was being deceptive and manipulative mm -hmm. and and so right she would be perfectly fine to you know look for another relationship right so yeah i don't think the suggestion is that she owes willow anything you know it's sort of like that was you know that was the way it went and she is perfectly free like you said um so um so a couple of things though i guess I mean, Willow's obviously disappointed, but, um, you know, Buffy's line about, you know, once you fall for Willow, you stay fallen. And it's like, is, is that, is that just a line you say to comfort your friend right. when she, cause it's like, okay, is that true? Is that a, that's a legitimate question. It has Tara moved on, you know, like, I think that's open for, is it a thing of maybe she has moved on and she me, you know, all of that, the spark that seemed to be between them wasn't really any indication that she was interested in getting back together. Um, you know, or she's moving on because she doesn't think that they will. It's not that she doesn't want to. It's just that she doesn't assume that'll happen. So she's not waiting. Um, and so I don't know. We'll have to, you know, see if it comes up um but i don't know that buffy's necessarily right about that you know sure. um yeah i mean that you know it what is true love like and right. is there only one person for anyone well you know willow and oz seem to have something pretty right. good and that right. got like it wasn't anyone's fault he got bit and couldn't stick around and left right so right. well right. and seth right. green got other jobs too but like sure. <laughs> <laughs> um right you know like like there's there's that th and but same thing with buffy and angel right like they had to work through their supposedly right. true love for all time you know <laughs> right um, right it's not always the lack of love that's the problem you know right um you know and i think it's possible for it would be possible for Tara to still love Willow and also choose to move on from her, you know, and those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. Um, sure. And so jumping ahead just slightly, the only other thing I would say about them though, is that it's interesting that Tara turns up at the end of the episode to kind of save the day. And it kind of makes you think, well, why did she do that? She just randomly decided right. to pop by the house and it seems like it's, well, or she's, because you needed someone to stop by. Well, like it probably wasn't going to be Anya. Well, but so then I think it's it's clever of them to set up earlier in the episode that she sees Willow walking away because 
whether or not it's ever addressed, my my headcanon of that is like she's coming by to follow up on that to either explain, you know, offer or whatever it is that she's going to say. She's, you know, because she hasn't been just coming by the house to hang out. She's been trying to stay away, you know, so that they're not hanging around each other all the time. So it seems like it's in response to Willow kind of running the other direction. Um, so, you know, and then it just happens to conveniently, you know, uh, you know, save the day in that moment. So it works out. It's a good thing that Willow kind of saw her and then ran because it's, it's the trigger for what happens at the end of the episode. Um, sure. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously you've did, done a lot of speculating, so I won't say one way or the other, you know, yeah. what Tara is or isn't doing at this point, but sure, it's it's all worth noticing. Yes. Um, so speaking of speculating, Anya's missing, you know, she's right. uh, she's packed up and Closed the magic box, which is the most chilling thing of all. Like, I like how Xander says that gave him chills. Like, what could be so bad that Anya wouldn't want to keep making money from the, the magic right. box? Like, that's the worst right. Like, sign. she no longer cares about money? Like, exactly. Like, how how devastated must she be? Um, you know? And uh, so, yeah, she's she is not around. Um, yeah, so... Uh, we went way further than we even needed to with our examples of true love, right? Like, cause like, wasn't that, that was the whole thing with Anya last time. It's like, I finally understand what love is and yeah. then has it ripped away from her. Right. And so, all right. So what, what is your, what's your take on Xander? Xander's <laughs> explanations here? Cause like Xander I, pisses me off a little bit. Yeah. Well, I can't tell if it's Xander that pisses me off or the way it's written because I'm just shocked at how quickly we get to this point. Not that I didn't think Xander would get to the point of regret, but apparently it happens off stage over the course of between these two episodes. Right, and like that feels that like feels like I was waiting for a big metaphor of the week to trigger these, you know, these feelings of of regret and it, it sure. just seems like a little um i don't know missed opportunity to get into it really um and it, i guess the annoying thing is that it gives the appearance of him of his decisions being very shallow of like you know he leaves her over something petty and then comes back to her for no reason at all like it, it just seems too fast I guess um to really be like all that deep um you know I mean I guess that's yeah, not totally unrealistic like there is a, such a thing as like instant kind of regret and you know of like you kick yourself as soon as you do something I guess I was just expecting after that big episode, I was I would be expecting more in terms of digging into like his issues and everything. Um. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't like. 
it would have been nice if he had at least said at the time, like, hey, this isn't us breaking up. I just, can we postpone it six more months? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, you could have said that before running out of the church. Right. Right. Well, and Willow and Buffy are even a bit confused about that. Of like, yeah. oh, wait, you're not breaking up, but you want to date or something? Like, right. So it wasn't a breakup. You just left her, left at the her altar with and, no explanation yeah. at the altar and then figured she would just be hanging around like waiting for you to come home after work like yeah um so i and i think that's it it, it it's just a bit rushed i think um he hasn't earned sure. this revelation i guess is what i would say um fair enough so. Yeah, I, and I don't, I don't disagree. Like I, I've always felt that his sort of just appearing again and being like, "Oh man, I really screwed up. <laughs> I'm an idiot." Right. Like, right. I mean, he does it a little more effectively than that, but mm -hmm. it's yeah. I, I, I kind of agree with you there. I, you know, again, I don't want to get into like because we don't see Anya in this episode, so. Yeah. Um, we just sort of get the report of like that she's not around. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we can we can keep an eye out for if and when Anya appears again. Yeah. Um, and see see how she takes that sentiment. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, I don't mean to laugh. If my laughing gives anything away, just please ignore it. <laughs> um, no. No, I mean... I, I have a feeling she she might not think all that differently than you. <laughs> I think probably I'd be surprised if, if she suddenly was um, like, oh, hey, no big. And, you know? and the, last, <laughs> the last time we saw her was DeHoffrin basically offering her her old job back, right? Right, right. I mean, whether she accepts or not, you know, right. we don't know. But like... Right, right. He at least sees an opportunity there. Right. Um, there was a time she enjoyed getting vengeance, you know, on, uh, you know, men who betray their women. And it's like, hey, <laughs> right. you know, this is offering her the, the you know, her the, the golden commission on a platter of like, right. you know, that's a that's quite a whether or not she does accept it. Like you said, that is quite a tempting offer, I think. Right. Um, so. Yeah, now that she has a little experience under her belt, of right? Actually Even being more so. Jilted. Yeah. 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 It's personal, you know. Right. Um, it's like the difference between like, you know, when you start a job like right after college and you don't really know what you're doing, versus like maybe when you go to like your second or third job and you're like, okay, like now I've I got, got some this. experience. <laughs> I I know what's going on. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. <laughs> um, so yeah oh well and there's the one you know just for little you know jokes and stuff spikes line about in a different reality you might have gone through with it like a man and you know the irony the ironies of that of like that is the alternate reality that xander saw you know right and his going through with it like a man is the reason he ran in the other direction you know so, um, you know, that spike makes it sound like a good alternate reality, 
but right. Xander's whole problem was that that was he, he that's saw the, that that's the mistake he was trying to run from was you know the mistake of going through with it so this kind of notion of he's kind of screwed no matter what he chooses or at least he thought he was um obviously i think now we probably know that that wasn't a true future that he was seeing but um but anyway salt or uh spike is always there to rub the salt in you know the cut and everything um all right so to get into buffy i guess speaking of spike this this scene takes place further in the episode but i want to mention you know the dynamic between buffy and spike um and especially you know the scene when you know they're in her bedroom and she has the like you know antidote that she's supposed to be drinking um you know and especially uh spike's new insight into what makes buffy tick so he kind of changes his opinion and it's it's not that she likes what does he say it's not that you love the dark it's that you love the misery um and that she you know can't stand being happy and settled um you know and there are people like that you know in the world that like whether she totally embraces her dark side and goes for that or whether she rejects it and you know refuses to go for it at least one way or the other um you know at least spike says she would be making a choice and be happy and so her her kind of perversion is that she won't do either of those things that she kind of is most happy in her own way at this kind of weird tortured in between stage where um you know she's not really fulfilled either way um and he threatens to tell the friends about their relationship um you know to force her to choose one or the other so yeah Spikes. So yeah, not not. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Spike is Spike, right? Yes. <laughs> well, and you know whether or not that's true or not, uh, it's the thing that makes her not take the antidote. <laughs> so it certainly like hits a nerve of some kind, you know. Um, I think, sure. uh, you know, there must be something about it that bothers her enough to consider not getting well from, you know, the demon poison and everything. Um, so on to that. So this demon sticks her with, you know, it's kind of spiny thing and, mm -hmm. Uh, and so we get this alternate reality where she's in a mental, mental institution, um, and everything has a kind of corresponding thing. So like the, the 
demon spine becomes, you know, the needle that the doctors are trying to stick into her. And, right, you know, right. um, lines of dialogue start to overlap about like, you know, you have to take your drugs, you know, meaning like turning into like, are you on drugs? Like you're not paying attention. And she's mm -hmm. like flashing between the two things. Um, so there's a couple different aspects of this that we want to talk, that we should talk about. Um, and I guess like first, the thing that we learn is, um, the plausibility of this, because we find out that she has been in a mental institution before. Yeah. Um, yes. When she goes and has a conversation with Willow, because Willow is just, you know, um, writing it off as, you know, it's, you know, there's no reason to think this is real. It's just the demon affecting you. It's just the, you know, whatever. And, um, you know, why would you believe this? And, you know, Buffy says that, you know, she was put into a clinic when she first started to see her vampires and her monsters and everything. Um, right. And that this was, you know, you know, her parents were sort of freaked out by this. And, um, and so there's a part of her that starts to wonder if she might still be there in the whole six years of the show, basically, would be the kind of, you know, delusion that she's been living in. Um, so, you know, that's interesting and brings us into the metatextual uh, aspect of this because, you know, partly the suggestion is that this could be the real text of the show, that it's, you know, about this girl who is living in this fantasy world. Um, so yeah, I know, I mean, I think I'll have some things to say on that, but I know you did as well. So feel free to jump in. I guess, I guess what I want to talk about is to what extent do you or do I, or should we buy into that as a potential reading? Um, or is it, you know, yeah. or is it just a kind of thing which is meant to kind of mess with your brain and not go any farther than this one episode? Um, so, yeah. Right. Um, so, okay. So there was actually, so Joss did a interview. Um with I don't know someone at some point um New York Times looks like so uh apparently apparently there's a reading of Hamlet in which a semi-popular reading of Hamlet I guess in mm -hmm. which you can read the play as all taking place in Hamlet's mind okay in, in his imagination mm -hmm. I'm not too familiar with this but Joss refers to it and, and the question is asked of him, you know, if that inspired normal again in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and so he kind of denies that. Um, but he says, you know, how important it is, you know, that this particular storyline of normal again um, 
how important that is in the scheme of Buffy is, I mean, it's really up to the person watching, which is of course always true of everything that a person watches, right? Like right. how much, how much credence you want to give to a particular storyline or, or yeah. if you want to add your own headcanon as we often do, you know, that's whatever. Um, but he says really where it originated is that, um, that it, the joke thing to us was, uh, that the crazy person is actually him, right? So he says, you you know, it's kind of a postmodern look. And so this is where the metatextual stuff comes in. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he says it's a postmodern look at the concept of a writer writing a show and kind of pulling together all these crazy ideas of like, you know, first of all, how can you even live, you know, how can we continue to like have these characters who live in this world and remain sane? You know, like mm -hmm. that's question number one. But then also like, all of these things that they've done over the course of the show that sort of leave these little plot holes or, or opportunities to create headcanon, if you want to look at it positively, you know, um, and, you know, things like, yeah, how, how does Dawn really come to exist? And why is she taller than Buffy? And, you know, what, what is, you know, if this is, you know, especially if it's like a delusion, right? Like if, like, why would Dawn actually be taller than Buffy if, if she's her little sister and she just creates her out of the blue or, you know, what was Adam's plan really? Cause like, we don't really fully get an idea of like what Adam was doing way back in season four. And, mm -hmm. and so just like those types of things um, that he references. Um, and so of course, on a metatextual level, you know, you have, so you have in within the story, you have Buffy still being in LA in a little room, you know, thinking up these weird, crazy things to keep her going. And Joss is kind of like, Hey, that's me. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Like I'm in LA in this little room, you know, in my studio or whatever. And I'm basically like a lunatic locked up thinking of all these crazy situations and kind of stuff. So, mm -hmm. you know, you can read it just as like, okay, this is kind of a fun episode, whatever. But I mean, you probably could also read it as like, if, if, if we were to take it more seriously, like within, within the story and not, you know, at least from Buffy's view, like not really knowing, is this a drug affecting my brain and causing me to hallucinate or jump to some alternate timeline or whatever, whatever is mm -hmm. going on, you know, I don't know. Like, like you could kind of see, like we just, we just see where it picks up with like her and her mom moving to Sunnydale. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, what if that was the moment she broke? And mm -hmm. like, what if the opening of the show and her, you know, starting school in this new place and you know all of these things is really her being brought to this institution and like it's all been the, like i i don't know i think you could take it there and give it a somewhat serious reading i mean obviously you have the entire thrust of the show and we like buffy generally mm -hmm. and we like the characters and you know all of these things so like i think there's always going to be the idea of you know the the desire to read it as no it was just a demon you know mm -hmm. 
injected her with the hallucinogen and, you know, caused her to kind of question herself for a little bit. Um, right. But I don't, I don't think it's like, I think it's done well enough that, and, and especially with the ending where you have the doctor, you know, right. like flashing his light in her eye and saying, you know, oh, I think we lost her. Like, like that's where they end it. They don't end it on her, right? you know, in Sunnydale. Right. So, you know, there is some room for interpretation there. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and I feel like that's probably the point of that uh, last little ending and that would be the main thrust behind any of those readings of this is the true, you know, reality in quotes, you know, is that kind of, it feels like an M night Shyamalan ending to me of like, sure. you know, fake out. She's been, you know, in the mental institution all along, you know? Um, but there's also, so I also want to point out though too, that like, I think you can also interpret it in a way, uh, you know, where, where you're reading it as a way to, Like there, there's a certain level of, or a certain s- sort of philosophy of, you know, your world is what you think it is, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and in a way, this is also an episode in which Buffy is just making that an active choice. Like, like you can almost read it like until now, she's just sort of been, impa- not that she hasn't actively chosen to be the Slayer before, because we've seen mm-hmm. that. We've seen her make that choice of like, okay, I'm not just going to, you know, be teenager Buffy I'm gonna be responsible and you know Mm -hmm. do the Slayer thing and and whatever but like this is another point I guess or or a point at which she continues to make that like reaffirms that choice or whatever and it sort of makes that actively of like okay this is the world I live in and Mm -hmm. I'm gonna like it gives me purpose and it gives me whatever so like I mean, I guess not that you would want someone who actually had mental issues to live in their delusion necessarily, but Mm -hmm. like there's also a sort of empowering aspect to it where it's, it's Buffy making that choice to say, you know, I'm going to choose to be a hero and save my friends and, you know, live sort of an examined and well fought life. Well, okay, so here's my, where I come down. I think you can definitely play that, that, you know, do that reading of, you know, the, the kind of alternate M. Night Shyamalan reading of it, and you could probably defend it and, you know, whatever. I, that's not the reading that I think makes sense. Um, sure. Like, to me, I do, I don't think that reading makes as much sense as, you know, as the idea that the Slayer and Sunnydale are the like real primary reality. And, and I think that's because, so I think you're right that like, it's not good to just say, you know, your brain is always necessarily whatever it is, is the healthiest. And that if you're crazy, you should just embrace that and live your delusion. Like that's, not healthy advice, but I think what's interesting here is that both realities are potentially presented as that. Like one of them is a delusion and one of them is real. Um, So it's not just a question of 
Sunnydale might be a delusion and is it good for Buffy to embrace it or not? The flip side of that is also true. If, if Sunnydale is real, that means that the mental institution is the delusion. Mm-hmm. And there's just as much danger in that delusion as there is in the Sunnydale delusion. Sure. Um, and I think, I think it, the, in subtle ways, this episode proves it to be the delusion because it's shown as the more tempting escape. Like, you know, all the lines in, in the show about it, the hard, you know, the, the hardest thing about the world is living in it. Um, and Joyce kind of makes a similar speech in this of like, you know, the world is hard, but you have to, to live and you have to make choices and you have to be brave and all this kind of stuff. In this episode, it's clearly shown that Sunnydale is the lesser of those two worlds as far as Buffy's concerned. That's the hard world. You know, like it's the world where she doesn't have her parents, where everything is on her, where she's unhappy and she's disillusioned and frustrated and doesn't know what to do. And so there's something, you know, bleak as the mental institution looks on the surface. To me, it's shown as the easy alternative. Like, let me let me go to the world where things are simple and I have doctors and parents who are going to take care of me. And, you know, like, I think, and I think that's, it, it, it goes that way gradually. Like, at first, it seems like this kind of nightmare world. Um, but in the end, I think it's in some ways more comforting, like, to me, the big, the big, you know, choice at the end comes with Joyce in her uh, speech saying to Buffy, like, your dad and I will always be there with you. And I can, I feel like you can almost see Buffy realize in the end, this is the lie. <laughs> because your parents won't always be with you. Like, they will in kind of, you know, in some spiritual sense, maybe, but physically no like sometimes parents die or sometimes parents leave and sometimes you have to find ways of living without them and you know and as comforting as it would be for her to stay with them there's a realization that that's not always true and it seems like to me that's the moment where she either realizes or decides and I think realizes that, you know, the truth is in Sunnydale. The truth is in these relationships that Joyce and the doctors are trying to get her to forget. Um, yeah. And she goes so, back to them. So that's that's my reading. Um, to play devil's advocate. Sure. Um, I see what you're saying about how, like, Sunnydale is the harder world in a sense. Um, But for her, for Buffy, if, if Sunnydale, if the Sunnydale world is the illusion Mm -hmm. and her in the mental institution is the real world, that doesn't make like Willow and Xander and all the rest, Giles, you know, whoever else we want to include in that, group Mm -hmm. um even you know riley angel Mm -hmm. everyone else right 
she would be losing all of them. Sure. And in some ways, whether because there's more of them or whether because maybe even now that her mother and father have been out of the picture for so long, like she's come to grow even closer to these people. Like, like these are all, it's going to be just as hard to lose them, even if they are figments of her imagination. Mm -hmm. They're very strong figments. Like, you know, we, I forget, I forget exactly what the doctor says, but he, you know, uh, you know, there's this multi-layeredness, right, to the to the delusion, he says, and that it's, you know, basically surrounding herself with friends and, you know, giving herself all of these powers that she's suddenly going to lose. Mm -hmm. And so there's, it might be mental, but I don't know that that necessarily makes it easier, mm -hmm. you know, to choose that world, because those are all the things that she would be losing. Sure. Uh, no, and let, I don't. Say, I don't mean to say, say that. that she would be. She. I don't mean to suggest that she wouldn't be giving anything up if she went. Yeah, and and I want to. So having played the devil's advocate card, I. Yes. I mean, I agree. I agree with you pretty much. So like, I don't. I, I'm not like arguing that. Sure. We should look at it that way, but I, I do think that you could come up with a decent argument for saying this is actually true, and and let's not forget. So. Buffy also acknowledges to Willow that she actually was in a mental institution. Before. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so I think that that adds a level of credence to it mm -hmm. that. Right. At least it, it wouldn't enough, have had otherwise. Yeah. At, like, like this is an episode of Buffy doubting herself. Right. And again, right. we've gotten those before in different ways, but, but like, that's ultimately what we're looking here is is that Buffy's really doubting herself and her abilities and doesn't have like, and this is kind of the first time where she's ever truly on her own and having to kind of make that decision. I mean, mm -hmm. yes, Willow makes the tea for her, but then she right. dumps it out. So like right. she ultimately does have to sort of force herself back into mm -hmm. the Sunnydale world. Um, so that, you know, that revelation that she was in a mental institution before. And it was directly related to, you know, the first time back in LA, you know, during the events of the movie, mm -hmm. <laughs> the movie that shall not be named. No. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, all of that where, you know, after that, you know, some, somewhere between that happening and the start of the show, she was institutionalized for a couple weeks or whatever. And mm -hmm. just kind of, forgotten about you know in in scare quotes and mm -hmm. um so that actually so that story is told in um the comics okay so there's actually a like a four four part like mini series within the buffy comic the, so this is the this is the buffy comics before season 8 so while after the show and before like season eight, they actually had a run of like original Buffy comics that kind of explored a number of different things. Mm -hmm. um, the The name of this comic miniseries is called Slayer Interrupted, um, mm -hmm. obviously modeled after Girl Interrupted. Girl Interrupted, right? Um, so, uh, and kind of tells us, or I've not actually read it, so I I can't really 
go into detail there, but um, you know, it's it's it, it they've sort of uh, retconned it in there um, mm-hmm. to talk about that uh, her being in that institution. But I also like there's also the sense that like yes, she was institutionalized by her parents, but like obviously she wasn't crazy, and mm-hmm. so like like she said like she figured it out pretty quickly like if I just stop talking about it, they'll think I'm fixed yeah. and yes we'll all be good and so right and that's one of the most poignant lines about it is when um when she says uh that uh where is it she says i tops i stopped talking about it so they let me go eventually my parents forgot and it's like that kind of how can you just forget and like obviously literally that didn't happen but there's a kind of willful forgetting there of right again actually just remind me of Jonathan and Warren. Like if we don't talk about it, it didn't happen. Right. Like this is a, an incident that we choose not to revisit and there's a stigma attached to it. Um, Right. And that's why, that's why I said scare quotes. Cause like, I don't like maybe Buffy believes they forgot it, but right. Like, that's just right. because they never mentioned it again. Like, right. those or, are or, two completely yeah. different things. Right. Or, or we, they forgot is code for, we don't talk about that. <laughs> like right. we're just, that's the two weeks well, that we, that we've sort of shoved under the table, you know? And the reason, the reason I think why Buffy might actually believe that they forgot is because she's talking to Willow. Like, and mm-hmm. her parents aren't around, like, like her mom said, sure. and her dad hasn't been seen in years. Right. At right. this point. So, right. So, like, I feel like if she actually thought that they didn't forget, mm-hmm. like, I, I think that's a genuine, I think she's genuine when she's saying mm-hmm. they forgot. Whether that's true or not, we mm-hmm. don't know. But, like, she at least believes that that's true, that they right. forgot. Right. I, that would be my interpretation of that. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. So I like I said I ultimately I I agree with you but I do I did want to come at it from a devil's advocate sure. standpoint there well and, and I, I think and it's deliberately written for those kinds of arguments you know there's enough sure. evidence on both sides that it you 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 can make a substantial argument you know um, you know I think ultimately that if the details can go either way in terms of the theme of what it's saying. I have my, you know, my interpretation or my preference, I guess, depending on how you want to phrase it. Um, but like, obviously that's, it's designed to kind of be able to have those sorts of debates and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but again, for me, ultimately, again, bleak as it is, the mental institution is presented to my view as the temptation, you know? Um, sure. You know, no, and I, so, I, and I don't disagree with that. Uh, I, and I think part of it is the shock of just seeing her parents again. Right. And not just seeing them, not just seeing them, mm-hmm. but also seeing them together. Mm-hmm. And like, like this is a family, you know, it's right. not just like, it's her mom and her dad, but like they're still divorced and like things suck and whatever. Like they're together in LA and presumably if she got better, she could go home with them and they could all be a family again. So 
Yeah. I, I think that's part of it. But, but yeah, like I think the more she sort of embraces that world, I almost said that delusion, but I, you know, mm-hmm. it is a delusion, right? Like that's what, so that if that's what we're agreeing that it is, then it's a delusion. Mm-hmm. So like the more she embraces that delusion, I think the more she realizes like, that yeah, like this isn't right. It's not actually what happened. And it's kind of that thing of like, yeah, like if it's too good to be true, then it probably isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So yeah, last couple minutes here. So was there anything else around like the ending or like, I don't know that we like, okay, so she decides to come back and she beats up the demon and like mm-hmm. her friends are saved. Um, and- yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I guess just touching on that, the, the, the fact that Buffy becomes the danger in this episode, like this is the first time we've seen mm-hmm. like Buffy mm-hmm. as like, turning on her friends and like physically like you know i mean she's made mistakes before um you know but this is the first time we see like that it's a great moment when sander's talking and she just sort of looks at him and smacks him in the face with the frying pan you know (laughs) like there's something funny about that but then you kind of realize the danger of her that she is this much more powerful than everybody else and if she's controlled or deluded into thinking that this is true, you know, she's, you know, not to, not very easy to stop when she sort of sets her mind on what she's going to do. So, um, that's a kind of scary notion. So, which is, which is what, uh, kind of what the trio has been trying to do to her all along, right. To sort of bring it back around to the beginning like that, like, maybe not specifically to turn against her friends, but they're not coming. They're not like attacking Buffy directly, right? All of, all of the things that they've done have been indirect. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is, this is another indirect thing that they're doing. I mean, they do it to Buffy, but you know, the, the effect is on her friends. Like you said, like, so like, even if she doesn't end up, you know, going into like this mental, like, I don't know that they necessarily know the specific effects it's going to have on her. Right. Um, but if the, you know, if one of the effects is that like, it ends up hurting people that she loves, then Mm -hmm. even if like, she doesn't stay in that sort of permanent hallucination, that's still going to be devastating for her, Mm -hmm. uh, in some way, shape or form. So, yeah, like all of these little, you know, things, the, you know, uh, like the different tests that they did to her, you know, with the speeding up time or the, the loop in the magic box or the, you know, turning her invisible. And, you know, all of these little, little things that they do to her, like, are all sort of messing with her in an attempt to sort of get her to mess up. And, right. I mean, who knows, like, Again, like, we don't really know what they're, like, is it to kill her? Like, are they trying to kill her? Or are they just messing with her because, like, they're nerds and they like messing with things? Or, like, yeah, whatever. Whatever that is. Right. We're still not entirely sure yet. But, you know, it's it's having more, like, the effects of it is is more and more dangerous, I think. 
Right. Well, and again, I think we talked about this when we first saw them, but they're reminding me of the stereotype of the kind of like internet troll of like, it, again, it's not direct. It's, it's harassment. It's behind the cover of, you know, being hidden or being anonymous and, you know, kind of coming at Buffy through things that will psychologically drive her nuts rather than physically or directly, you know, engaging her in any sort of real, you know, battle because they will lose that. They kind of, you know, do it in much sneakier and more kind of cowardly ways, but they're, it's in a way, you know, even more devastating because it, it messes with her sense of her own, self and her own self-control and what you know she can control and what she can do sure and so the one last thing i want to point out too is like how long it takes her to you know think of you know how, how long it takes for her to sort of realize that the trio is actually behind this which is sort of ironic considering that she was looking for them and this sure. happened so like like even like this demon appears and stabs her and, you know, with or injects her with this, you know, venom or whatever. And, like, she, even even though she's actively looking for them, she doesn't equate mm-hmm. the demon with them until, like, halfway through the episode when she's like, oh, yeah, like, Warren did this to me. Warren. And then, like, the doctor's like, oh, you know, they're not real and blah, blah, blah. Right, right. But, like, right. but, like, it's not till she's, like, well into her hallucination that she even like considers that they could have been behind this. And so, you know, again, like that should have been the first thing that she's thinking of, but they're, they're still so kind of, like you said, like they're removed from it. Like they're not, Mm -hmm. they're not coming out front and center with, you know, uh, their actions. And so she, she sees them maybe as like a threat, you know, which is why she's looking for them, but not, as like a serious one and mm-hmm. so like like a demon with hallucinogenic drugs is a serious threat and so like the two don't seem to like mesh in her mind mm-hmm. until later when it's like oh upon reflection right i was at this house where i suspected they might be and right. you know suddenly this demon appeared maybe there's a connection well and maybe know? if she remembers which house she was at at the time that could yeah, be a, right. like that could a big be... clue as to where they are. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, or look again, for a Star with... Wars van. <laughs> um, that too. Uh, and again, with the little um, metatextual clues and asides and everything about, you know, the fact that the ordinariness of the trio is a sign um, that in, in the you know, institution world that can be interpreted as a sign that her, her delusions are breaking down, that they're not the great grand right. villains that they used to be, which again is a comment on them as characters in the show of this, this ain't the master or the mayor or anything that these are, you know, three pathetic little men who like playing with toys as the doctor calls them. Um, so the show kind of commenting on, yeah, these aren't really up to the standard. Again, not that they're not dangerous, not that they're not bad, but um, it, it even 
in this season, which is kind of all about frustrations, even the villains are a little disappointing. Like, <laughs> like you guys aren't quite as impressive as what we're used to. Um, you know, and there's a similar line about, uh, you know, her friends being the same way. Like they used to be the greatest friends ever. And now it's like, well, they're not as comforting as they used to be. And they're coming apart, you know, like everything, everything is kind of, on in the in decline you know the heroism isn't as pure as it used to be it it's all kind of messy and gray now um yeah so yeah no i i do i think one of the things i do really well with this episode and with the whole conceit of um the institutionalization is how they mesh it in with you know uh some of those other aspects like mm -hmm. yeah like you're saying like yeah like i don't like i don't know when they chose like the trio to be you know her main nemesis mm -hmm. nemesis nemesis <laughs> um you know this season like if this episode was even like being written yet but like yeah, there is it. It like it. I like how they sort of point out these little inconsistencies or these little maybe things that like, I, and maybe they were even things that at the time people were complaining about on you know right. the Buffy boards or that were being brought up in like reviews of the show. And so they're like, right. all right, fine, we'll we'll deal with this. Like, right? It, if you well, want to yeah. complain about plot holes, then we'll just make it all a part of Buffy's mind and. You know, it's exactly. Fault, you know, or exactly. Like it, it reminds me of <laughs> some of the approach in Lost occasionally. It's like, when in doubt, write it into the show of like, you hate Nikki and Paolo, so do we. We're going to bury them. <laughs> like, right, right. you know, just that kind of the show responding to its own criticisms, you know, and making it part of the story. Um, um, so but, I can and, definitely see, you know, whether that was the intention from the start or halfway through. It, it works, you know, because right. it kind of does comment on the characters and everything. And, and also, also lets you know that the writers are aware of these things. Like, yeah. like, it's not, like, I think there's a tendency to think that like, oh my God, they just missed this huge, like, whatever. Right. When it's like an actuality, like, no, they knew it was there and they left it in anyway. So what does yeah. that say? Like, exactly. like, does that make it more or less egregious, you know, in mm -hmm. whatever way? Um, right, and obviously, you know, different people will answer that differently. But sure. Uh, well, yeah. and and I'll and I'll go, you know, be extra clear and say I don't, I I don't necessarily find the trio egregious as villains. Like I think they're interesting. Like they're terrible people. But sure, like, sure. Like, I, and I, I was just speaking more generally, even like right. Not no, even specifically and, about them. But yeah, no. And I I I got that. I just want to be clear that you know I think. Um, you know, maybe they are responding to criticisms, but I certainly wouldn't have seen the role of the trio as something to criticize. Like it's, it, you know, I think that's part sure. of, you know, they're one of the aspects of this season and they're kind of annoying, their petty annoyingness is part of what makes them work. And again, it reflects like what it, what it is that they are, you know, they are petty little men. And they shouldn't be treated as, you know, uh, impressive supervillains when they're not, I guess. Um, sure. So. 
Um, the one other, the one other callback that I like and is 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 pretty subtle. Um, is when he when the doctor uh, refers to her momentary awakening last summer, which is of mm-hmm. course when she was dead. Right. right. Yes. So, I like, caught that on the second view. I think. So like, there's that. There's that moment where you're like, wait, last summer, and you have you you do have to sort of think through it, like, oh, right, when she was dead, and then you right. realize, like, oh, like, we also know that she was perfectly happy at that mm. time, right? So that right. that would and her and her friends pulled her back in, you know, right, right, <laughs> which is exactly what happens this time around. Right. So like again, like there's that little that little bit of like, you know, which again, it's like right through this supernatural like ultra magical you know incantation that uh willow does while being like attacked by demons and it goes wrong and mm-hmm. you know but buffy's brought back anyway and you know so like there's there's all of these like you know again like this sort of super aspect to it that brings her back into the world but um yeah no th- just that just that idea of like you know, using using those little moments that mm-hmm. is mostly off screen, right? Because like we get, right, we don't see Buffy for like that whole first episode of the season until the right. very end or whatever. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I I mm-hmm. like that callback, and I think there's some good stuff like that in this episode. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. We've we've gone a little bit over. Um, any any final things you want to mention? No, no. I think we're good. I think we covered the you know the ending. I think like you know it's there to kind of mess with you, um, and it, it adds more, you know, fuel to the to the debate. Um, but I think we kind of, I think we both laid our our chips out for whatever they're worth. Um, so I will just note that um, there's actually so uh, this originally aired in, in March uh, 2002, mid March, mm-hmm. and there's a month and a half between this and the next episode, which means <laughs> we're going to be watching three Angel episodes in a oh, row. Oh, good God! Um, so, which don't say it like that. Angel's not a bad show, or anything. but yeah, <laughs> like. So there is there is that uh, aspect to it as well that like it's not right, like right. there's you're no left on, or anything. This but, is the note you're left on, yeah. But it's 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 you know the spring like like we we get like the winter you know finales right. This is almost kind of like a spring finale, <laughs> you know, before the second half of the spring, you know, mm-hmm. the last whatever one, two, three, four, or five episodes, right. Um, you know, uh, leading up to the uh, uh, finale there. So, um, right. Yeah. So, just kind of want to mention that too. Like, this is like people, it's the type of thing where people will have been sort of maybe debating, like, mm-hmm. is she really in an institution or is she not for, you know, the next six weeks until you right. get a new episode? Um, right. And uh, yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, Whereas I mean, no, I, I, that's that's a good point too. Is like, I think you can play devil's advocate and make your argument, but ultimately, the show is against you in the in the sense that 
okay, of all however many episodes there are, there's one that's set in the institution, you know, and that's your evidence. Whereas I think if you were watching it live, you might be sitting on pins and needles for a month and a half wondering, is this going to come up again? Is this like part of the premise that like we've been introduced to a whole other aspect of the show, you know, and that could have felt like a much more serious possibility at the time, you know, in a show where they just out of the blue introduce, you know, a new character and kept her around, you know, like changed the premise. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, Yeah. It's totally legit. And, I don't, I'd have to go back and look. I don't know if people know at this point whether it's coming back for another season, right? Because this is season six and it's the first season on the CW. Right. And I don't know if it's been renewed for season seven yet at this point. Right. Um, Right. It might have been. So I I don't want to say with any assurance one way or the other, but but that might have been in play too, like, yeah, could this be a game changer? And as we head towards the end, yeah, right. As we yeah. end towards right the last few episodes ever, right. Or even even if they do know that there's one more season, like could this be something that they right. look into more, right, in the last season? So right. yeah, lots of stuff um, that you know could potentially uh, be talked about there during this hiatus. Mm-hmm. So any any. We should move on to BSG. Okay. Um, <laughs> so uh, speaking of like convoluted episodes, like this is one of the, you know, this is another one where we basically see like almost everyone like sure. on the show. Um, I think the only person we don't see is like Gaeta. Right. Yeah. Right. Like pretty much everyone else like makes an appearance. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although I feel like we spend I feel like the last two were more evenly spread out. Whereas I feel like in this one, we spend like a lot of time with certain people and only a minute or two with others or something. Sure. But, but yeah, maybe like Gate is the only one, although he kind of is in it indirectly via the, the death list. Well, well the dog right. ball, but also the, that's true. I didn't even think of that, but um, the list that he sends to Tyrrell, right. you know, which I, you presume he sent because he said, right. well, if he says, like, I got it from from the dead drop, you know. So yeah, yeah. so he's there sort of in spirit, but not directly. Right. So, um, yeah, so it makes it a little tough um, about where to start. But, like, mm-hmm. if we spend, like, five minutes on each person, or, <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever, then we should be good. Okay, five um, I minutes. I think there's like I think that's like literally like if we spend five minutes, then we'll have our hour. Well, maybe we um, can spend one minute on one person and ten minutes on somebody else. Yeah. But anyway, go ahead. So, all right. Um, and I want to group them. So, like, we'll start with like the resistance stuff. Um, one thing that I wanted to bring up, um, and this is something that I just discovered. Um, and that you had said you you hadn't realized before is that in these first four episodes of uh, the season, we don't get any survivor count, um, you know, in the opening credits like we have for every other episode here here to four, mm-hmm. um, and and which will be started up again once we get past episode four. 
I wasn't able to find a reason. Um, now there are two episodes, the the two finale episodes at the end of this season, um, the the season three finale, part one and two, uh, also don't have survivor counts. And I did find an explanation for those episodes that it's because they're a little bit longer, and so they ended up cutting mm-hmm. part of the uh, intro, um, or you know the the title sequence or whatever. Um, and, and so that's part of it that gets cut. And, but I don't, I wasn't able to confirm that that is also the case here. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I, you know, I just don't know if that is or isn't, or if there was some other reason. Um, but in sort of talking through it, um, I kind of had a thought that like, may, maybe there's a internal reason why we mm-hmm. could, you know, uh, not have a survivor count. Right. Um, so there's a couple things that, that we well, that I was thinking and, and you helped me think through some of it. Um, one of those is that uh, maybe maybe we're not getting the numbers because that was a, a Rosalind thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like as the president, she was the one who wrote that number up there initially and, you know, updated it pretty religiously, you know, yeah. every time a person died or was born. And, uh, you know, so we get that number you know yes it's like superimposed over the title sequence but it also becomes it you know we know that it's Rosalind's number on the board right so Mm -hmm. you know that takes on a certain significance and of course now here in the beginning of season three we have Baltar as the president and we know Mm -hmm. he doesn't care about that stuff right 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 he's not the people person and so well um, and I think I think we pointed out that the whiteboard is replaced by his portrait. So there right. is, so there is no whiteboard. Like, you know, if, if a census is being taken, it's not by Baltar and not on in its traditional place. Um, that's been replaced by his sort of ego. Right. Um, um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, like, like literally. Yeah. Right. Um, um, and, and symbolically as well. But yeah, the, the second um, piece of it was that we, we have a major division uh, within the fleet. And so you have uh, the Galactica and the Pegasus with their crews, and then also part of the civilian fleet mm-hmm. um, that has jumped away. And um, you also have a number of people in detention, and an indeterminate number of people, mm-hmm. at least from our point of view. The Cylons might know, but we don't. Right. Um, and right. presumably so they just... Baltar doesn't even know how many people are being detained. Yeah. It doesn't um, really they seem may, like it may not even know how many people have died, not just from the Cylons, but also sickness, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, we remember that Sam was sick for quite a while there mm-hmm. and uh, others presumably were sick because this isn't, it, it's not the most hospitable environment. Mm-hmm. And they also don't have basic things like sanitation and, Right. agriculture and you know the right. things that people generally need to live and have a clean and ordered society right so, and they're and they're running out of antibiotics and everything but you know that's right, what, right. why kara was calling medicine lee is, was to try to get some of the like hoarded yep. medicine from the pegasus and everything yep um so, so yet they simply may not know how many survivors they have um you know and they may not know how many kids are being born like, obviously, sure. you know, we know that uh, 
Chief and Callie have a kid. Um, you know, they've been they've been down there a year. Presumably other couples have, mm-hmm. you know, been, you know, procreating as well. And uh, there may just not have been, again, given Baltar's sort of predilection for not thinking about other people, <laughs> um, you know, it, no one may have done account of like, mm-hmm. you know, that that Rosalind might have done. Um, I I would love to see though that like if Rosalind like has been writing that stuff down like in the little journal that she keeps like like you could still see her being interested in that even though she's right. not the president you know right right um, and and just the by virtue of the fact that she's a school teacher now and right. so you know would be interested in like what are my class sizes going to be in five years or right. you know whatever right. um, that sort of thing like she seems like a forward enough thinker to to be already considering mm-hmm. that type of thing. Yeah. Um, so anyway, like I don't, I've probably already spent more than five minutes on this topic and I'm already violating my own rule, but <laughs> I don't, I don't want to make too much of it, but um, just thought that that was interesting. I, the, the thing that led me to it, um, I think I told you, but I don't think I've said yet um, here is that uh I was thinking about it in terms of the webisodes where, you know, a, num- a number of people die mm-hmm. uh, or at least a couple of people die and wanted to go back and see, like, did they keep that count consistent between um, the end of last season and the beginning of this season? And that's when I noticed, oh, they don't actually have a count. So. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think I, I noticed that the, the credits are different in these episodes. Um, but I think that's probably what distracted me into not realizing that the, the count is missing um, because instead of them fleeing in the, in their ships, they're kind of whatever it says, fighting for survival down on the ground or something. Um, right, and right. I just simply never noticed that. But I think that's, it's nice because I feel like I, I, it does kind of add something diegetically to the story of, mm-hmm. okay, we're fighting for survival and, whoever it is that's keeping this count, you know, if it's Rosalind or the Baltar's government or the BSG or whatever, we don't actually know right now, you know, what it is that we're even really, we know what it is we're fighting for, but we don't actually have any sense of the numbers and everything. And and I think especially in light of the people who are unaccounted for, that's, you know, that's a nice touch that we have, people missing and are either in detention or presumed dead. And we're not actually sure even what's going on. Um, right. Right. Like uh, thinking about like when Rosalind and Zarek are sort of foresee each other in the truck there, it's like, Oh, you're still alive. Okay. Right. Like, <laughs> right. Right. Or um, when Tyrell's asking Gaeta for information and you'd think, well, Gaeta's in the, Cylon and slash human government maybe he would ha- have an idea of numbers but he's even kind of like yeah they don't really tell us about that stuff <laughs> like you know so if the Cylons know they're not sharing like that kind of data that's being kept you know behind you know whatever paperwork and everything right um so yeah it, it's the kind of uh, transparency is not really part of the you know, new Capricorn government at the moment. 
Yep. Um, all right, so let's talk resistance because, um, all right, so we kind of pick up pretty much where the last episode left off um, with a little bit of overlap here, right? So we get um, the prisoner trucks, the, the death trucks or whatever we're, you, know, you want to call them, um, stop and, you know, with... The excuse is to let everyone get out and stretch their legs. Oh, and also so that you're in the open air yeah. and can be easily shot by the Cylons. Right. Um, Jammer has a, you know, has been showing his conscience mm-hmm. uh, for a little while now, and uh, <laughs> finally, you know, like he he does basically a sort of symbolic act of letting Callie mm-hmm. go, like he cuts her bonds and pushes her down the hill and lets her run off, right? Um, Meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, you have Tyrell getting the list, um, as you alluded to earlier, from Gaeta, although he still doesn't know it's Gaeta, right? Right. Even though we saw him talking to Gaeta last time, like that was just this like, oh, hey, remember when we used to be on the same side and they like... Don't necessarily know who the other, you know, who who you know who's on the other side of the dead drop, um, right? Even if they might be able to guess, uh, right? Or he's not thinking about it hard enough to come to that conclusion, right? Um, like he probably should be able to guess it, but you know, right. um, so so yeah, so you have. Gaeta, you know, freaking out because he sees Kelly's name on this list Mm -hmm. um, and going to Ty and then Ty is like, well, hey, remember, remember we broke that code. Go find that. And, you know, sort of, sort of gives him a little uh, MacGuffin to look for. Um, You know, and And I think, again, we see Ty in one of his better modes, which is well, crisis mode, you know, like Ty is better in sure. an emergent. Of, of, I mean, obviously, it's not his wife that's about to be killed, but you see Ty's cool head of, you know, you gotta right. clear your head and think straight, or else, you know, or else something will happen. Um, whereas Tyrrell's so beside himself that he can't even really string two thoughts together. Um, which again might account for why he's not thinking these things through very clearly is just his panic over um, sure. what's going on and what a, what a, what can I do? Um, yeah, no, that's a that's a valid point. Like, yeah, if your loved one is about to get murdered, like you might not have the clearest head in the world. That's just right. the way those things sort of go. Um, but yeah, so I mean, good news is they figure it out um, and go, you know, he, he, he gets uh, Selix, right? And did, did I say that right? Selix. Selix. Yeah. Um, Selix and a couple other, you know, sharpshooters or whatever. And, you know, they trundle off to the location X or whatever it is where, mm-hmm. you know, the people are going to be killed. And so... Um, Again, m- meanwhile, uh, away from the ranch, um, you have uh, Sharon, Agathon, and mm-hmm. 
her crew uh, coming down uh, to New Caprica and, and rendezvousing with uh, Sam and, and his mm-hmm. team. Um, and they're very like they're very strategic, right? They're like, oh well, if we were going to be ambushed, it would be from here, and and they kind of you know split some people off and go and and you know are basically able to turn around what was going to be an ambush of Sam's team. Right. Sure enough, they are ambushed. Yeah. Right. They are ambushed, and and someone even gets shot, but uh, you know they're able to sort of turn that around and and defeat the Cylons, which. Mm then leads to uh, discovering that Ellen is a traitor because mm-hmm. the Cylons have the map that she was supposed to have burned right. um, and which is in Sam's handwriting. So he immediately knows, right. you know, what it is and all what of that. What happened, Recog- right. Recognizes it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, so the, all of that's happening while Tyrrell and his team are saving the the people who are about to be, you know, murdered by the Cylons. So just lots of like movement, lots of pieces and people moving around. Well, mm-hmm. the pieces are the people, but, um, you know, lots of just sort of like setting up for, you know, the, this two part arc or mm-hmm. is it an arc? I guess if it's only two parts, but it, you know, the two part story is mm-hmm. called Exodus. So mm-hmm. obviously we know that's, what's coming up right where this is is headed right is is the leaving um and also actually so it just occurred to me like i had mentioned i'd used the the word um when we were when we were talking before uh we started recording uh when we were talking about survivors con i had used the term diaspora Mm. um and hadn't really considered that like oh yeah well the exodus right like this is sort of (laughs) the sure maybe not the start of the diaspora but it's it's that thing of like you know the the israelites moving right you know the 12 tribes moving uh you know around uh and not having a settled place um well and 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 this is the first part of their movement out of occupation out of captivity you know by a by an overwhelming right you know ruler um yeah i mean you know that's kind of what's being set up and um and i feel like i i was just going to say too like is that the is that the first allusion we have to like a non-greek mythology non-greco-roman mythology (laughs) i mean other than other than the cylon religion of of monotheism of of one true okay sure you know i mean i think but but maybe Maybe for a specific allusion to stories other than Greco-Roman well, stories, and, and I was stuff. I was thinking for the colonists, sure, because like all of, all of the colonial stuff is right. Greco-Roman, always, right? That's true. That's true. I can't, I can't think of any others. So yeah, might I mean, be. yeah, there may be other things here and there but yeah i i mean good point about the cylon monotheistic you know religion or whatever but um right i my my intent was to ask you know specifically around the uh right col- uh, colonists so colonial. yeah um yeah 
Yeah, no, and it might be, and that might be a sign of, of the further blending and you know of the two of things mm-hmm. becoming less kind of black and white of uh you know, and th- we'll get to that when we talk about number three because that's kind of one of the things that the oracle is starting to say to her is you know, sure, uh maybe it's not one or the other um you know because she talks about zeus you know um but she also talks to diana about your god the god that you speak to so there seems to to the oracle it seems to be that maybe they're not it's not one or the other um so yeah and also so to go back to these opening things maybe just the first time on new caprica that there's been real like victory as far as the resistance is concerned like it's kind of hard for me to argue that like the suicide bombings are victories like regardless of what ty would say you know that those are maybe tactical victories but they were very ambiguous and contentious in terms of even the resistance members are bothered by them um and don't necessarily feel like they're worth it. Um, whereas here, we get two situations where it looks like the good guys are going to get slaughtered and it gets turned around. You have, you know, you find out in the beginning of this episode that other things were in motion that allowed them to turn the tables and, you know, win these battles against the silence. So you you start very slowly starting to turn the tide of the way things are going. Yeah. It's not all well, just doom and gloom for the humans. And you see, so what's interesting too is that like, you see how much organization and how much of a long game they're actually playing. Because mm. I, I feel like up until this episode, you you get the idea that it's like just Ty sort of trying to be as big of a jerk as he can be for the Cylons. Like, right, but like is, that's, that's his that's own that's description, right? Like, right, right. Like that's his own description is is it's my job to be as big of a pain in the ass as I can be mm-hmm. and to keep them busy and occupied so that when Adama comes back. But but you realize like while he's doing that, like part of the effect of his distraction is to allow others like Roslyn mm-hmm. to coordinate their escape. And and I'm skipping around a little bit in our notes, but um, she's got, you know, escape plan. Like, like you, you find out that they've actually been drilling this escape under the guise of like fire drills and, mm-hmm. you know, emergency evacuations and that type of thing. Um, you know, which are things that like, municipalities take part in from time to time like you hear about like exercises like that have so it's not like wholly unwarranted and obviously they do it that way so that the cylons won't suspect what's really going on but you realize like actually this isn't this isn't just like a thrown together like Mm -hmm. motley crew like there's actually some real thought and preparation put into yeah what's coming uh sort of to a head here um Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, I, I, I do think that there's uh, an interesting aspect there of, of just how much um, they really do to plan this whole thing out. And that it's, it is more than just 
Ty again being like a jerk and and you know doing the worst things that he can think of to do. He right. that is the case. Like he right. is doing that, but it's not right. only that. Like there's actually a purpose and a, and a method to it, even even as unsavory as it might be at times. Mm-hmm. Right, right, and it's not Ty is not the sum total of the resistance. There are other right. There are lots of other people who have equally if not more crucial jobs to do and and the amount to which they're all working together towards that common purpose in a way that they pretty much have never done before sure (laughs) especially between like ty and Rosalind, right right like this is ty who you know when adama got shot like took over everything and declared martial law Mm -hmm. and like now he's like not that they agree on all the methods or anything, but like, you know, they definitely uh, are in a much better place than they were then. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. So anyway, so, okay. Uh, speaking of Ty. Uh, so first of all, Ty is, so you know that uh, a paragraph or whatever in, in Tolkien's letters where he, um, talks about anarchists as like men, old men with beards, and like you know whatever, and you know throwing yeah. bombs and that kind of thing. Yeah. Like that's Ty, right? Like when I see like the visual that I have when when Tolkien's talking about that is like Ty's face, sure. In like this episode, well, in the past couple of like the grizzly, like right. yeah. Anyway, that that that's neither here nor there. That's just uh, right. something I thought of. Um, well, and I don't know that I have a real conclusion yet, but every episode I keep thinking, like, other than just uh, showing casualties and, you know, consequences of this whole occupation, the significance of Ty's single eye, you know, like, I, I'm I'm determined to come up with, like, a really cool symbolic reading of Myopic, that. yeah. Like... Something, you know, like, I, I don't know that I've settled on something yet, but it or, seems... Or... He's a cyclops, like right, or like some sort of Odin reference or something. You know, like I don't, oh, okay. I don't yeah. know, I don't know yet. I haven't settled on mm. something that I think is. Yeah, real. There, is there any like bird, like raven imagery? Or... <sighs> Not yet. No, not yeah. that I can think of. Well, but we're trying. We're trying. We're trying. We'll I'm come trying. Up with something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, um, he's not getting the eye back, so we have the rest of the show to think about it. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but it's so, especially in this episode where there's that prominent shot of his gaping eye socket, you know, before he puts the bandage on it. Like, that's such a prominent feature of his face now. Um, and so. one, one of the few acknowledgments in, like, the entire series of him having a weakness. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, of his own acknowledgments. Other people right. certainly acknowledge it. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, Starbuck especially acknowledges all the weaknesses that he has. Right. Um, but yeah, like one of the few times, and it's just him and Ellen. Right. But, uh, you know, there is that thought of like, well, like he doesn't very often admit like that things are hard or that mm-hmm. whatever. But like he does say it's hard to get the patch on right in the mirror and and kind of lets her help him. Right. Um which is all fine. And, you know, she has that line of like, you know, I'd do anything for you. Right. Mm -hmm. 
very very heavy very weighted with mm-hmm. the things that she's already done mm-hmm. um, which are not precisely for him like they are but they aren't right so it's like mm-hmm. she's been sleeping with Cavill mm-hmm. or not sleeping with him and um uh you know presumably that's what kept Ty alive and unharmed mostly mm-hmm. um to a certain extent uh but yeah like at the same time it's like she's also stealing information and and actively hurting mm-hmm. the resistance in in doing so so right uh definitely well, a problematic situation there. well and and like you said one of the few times that he's showing vulnerability and she's he's allowing her to help him with that and i think like very rarely do we see trust and vulnerability as an aspect of their relationship. You know, it's like mostly it's like they have a kind of, they, they love each other in their own way and have certainly a passionate relationship, but it's not necessarily like a tender relationship. (laughs) And so like, (laughs) right. Sure. So this is like, again, the irony of that, of like, you know, I kind of believe her when she says she loves him and would do anything for him. And that's what, you know, makes it uh, that much more painful when it comes out what she's done, you know? Um, And it's kind of like, are they reaching a new level of trust just as this is the moment that it breaks, you know? And the betrayal of that. Um, And... You know, and I kind of feel for Ellen because it's sort of like she's, you know, I think whether or not it was naive to believe this, I think she did think this was her only way of protecting him. And yet she's very nearly doomed them all. So um, it's there's no real good, you know, solution to this, to her situation. Um so yeah, I mean, it just kind of ends with his his shocked eye. It doesn't really, you know, it's nothing. There's nothing else in this episode that shows where they're where they go, you know, from there. But um, yeah. Um. All right, so uh. And of course, with Ellen and Ty, yeah, like you get uh, Sam has her brought in, right? And then mm-hmm. you get sort of the revelation to Ty at the end there, mm-hmm. or near the end uh, of kind of what's going on. But we don't see sort of the resolution of that. Right, yet. right. So, well, um, and actually, I, I want to also point out the other guy who's in Sam's team that, that brings Ellen in. Um, I think I they don't necessarily say his name. I had to look it up, but um, is Charlie Connor, who I think we'll see again a couple times. So I think this is the first time that we're seeing him, um, you know, as one of the inner circle of the resistance. But um, you know, just wanted to point him out so that we have like a name and a face for him later. Sure. Cool. Um. So yeah, and then uh, sorry, 
No, I was just going to say, I think like, so the last thing for the resistance is um, Sam's jobs. So he. um, Right. He seems to be sort of like the odd man, like, you know, odd job man, not the odd man. Um, Yeah. The the odd job man. Right. Like, so he's he's the one going out to meet with Sharon. And then um, like we've seen him doing sort of like other things with Tyrell. But he's not like. Like on Caprica, he was kind of the leader, mm-hmm. right? Of or, I mean, yeah, he kind of was the leader, right? Mm-hmm. And and here he's more like a competent platoon sergeant, but not like the one making decisions per se. Sure. Um, well, and so I think I don't, that could go towards the fact that a lot of the other resistance members are like former military. You know, right. and so there might just be a, a deference there of you're yeah. all professional soldiers or Rosalind's the, the we kind of treat her like she's still the president, you know. And so they're kind of higher in the ranks than he's sort of, you know, a right. competent I civilian. I don't think it's like a slam against him to say that in that way. It's just sort of noting that his position is different here. So he's kind of getting sent out. Right you know, to do these different things or whatever. But yeah, like, so with Roslyn, she puts him in charge of security, safety over Mia slash Hera. Mm-hmm. Um, and tries to impress on him how important it is without coming right out and saying who she is and why it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he gets it, don't you? Don't you think he guesses? Like... He, or he has a a good guess, even if he's not 100% sure. I mean... Yeah, I mean, it's hard the, to say, because, like, we, he doesn't he doesn't say anything, right? So, like, he's... No. He's just kind of like, okay, I get it. And, like, you know, sort of clarifies with her, like, okay, what... How far do you want me to take this, right? Like, like if, right. if we're about to be captured, do I kill her? Like, right. or, you know what what's happening here um and so Rosalind gives him you know instructions around that or whatever but yeah i don't it would be hard for me to say that he it's just the that look he in his actually eye. uh what's that it's just the look in his eye you know it's it's the way the actor plays it maybe um, maybe you're looking at him in the eye more than i am <laughs> Um, which he's an attractive man. So no, no, you know, judgment there, but that um, could be it. I, I don't. Based on what he actually says and whatever, like I, it would be hard for me to make assumptions about what he does or doesn't know or guess. Mm -hmm. Um, if, if you have, I, I, I guess, I guess I don't, I don't take the look in his eye as sufficient uh, evidence. I, I, I guess. Well, but I think there's. <laughs> this, this is going to make it sound like I'm claiming that you're saying something that you're not. So don't like. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but. But you're going to. I'm. I'm going to say that there's more. This is obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway. There's more to acting than the dialogue. And there's 
the way the actor plays it to me. Not that it's that important a question, but I, I just feel so, like there are nonverbal cues which tell you that he gets it and he gets it enough to realize why it's important not to talk about it. Um, or at least he guesses enough to know that, okay, I, I understand what we're dancing around and that's the end of the conversation. And again, not that it's, I don't think it ever becomes important so again. Part, so it's not like a big deal or anything, but. Part of my hesitation is that I just don't, I don't think we ever get before now an idea of how much he even knows about Hera and Sharon and Hilo. Sure. Well, we know he knows Sharon and Hilo from the the planet that they were, you know, on the ground when when he met Kara and when they were rescued. So it seems yeah. like he knows and, them to a certain extent, but yeah, actually, we don't really that, know that. That's a good point because, like, I what I didn't mention before was that there actually seems to be a genuine affection. Like he do, he doesn't seem afflicted with the same sort of Cylon hatred right. towards Sharon that yeah. a lot of other people are. Like he, he seems to genuinely, you know, enjoy seeing her, even though he's kind of makes that offhand comment of, well, it feels like I'm seeing you every day, but right. like, I don't, I, I don't take that as like, that's not like a hostile comment towards her. Right. It's just, it's just sort of noting the sort of bizarre and ironic nature of who she is mm -hmm. and, and the whole situation. Um, so I, yeah, like, correct. But does he know that she's pregnant at that point? And I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I guess we don't know that for sure. I, we, I kind we can of probably assume, assume that it came up at some point, but yeah, we can assume that, but that's what, and that's kind of what I mean is like, we we would have to make assumptions and I just don't know how much he knows about that whole situation mm -hmm. and like who he's heard it from. Like, did he hear, like, did he talk to Hilo directly and mm -hmm. like find out from him or was it like him and Starbuck in bed one time sort of right. were discussing things and it was all based on rumors and stuff that each of them had heard or right. I just don't know. So I guess that's right. the thing. No, like, we I don't just, know that you're right. I just don't know. And so that's that's mostly where my hesitation comes in. Sure. Maybe maybe the look in his eye is perfectly telling and I'm just too naive or or uh uh lack the subtlety to discern it. <laughs> I'm perfectly willing to acknowledge that that, that might be the case. Yeah. I I'll the next time I watch that episode, I'll try to look closer at his eye. More gaze more deeply. If I ever get uh, Michael Trucco on a panel, that's what I'm going to ask him. <laughs> Do you act with your eyes? Do you act with your eyes? In this scene, where you subtly trying to communicate that Sam... <laughs> he'll probably like not even remember the scene. He'll be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. We 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 may never know, but 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 that's why this sort of interpretation is so fun, right? Because exactly. it leaves it it leaves it open for us to each have our own opinions, and neither of us is right, neither of us is wrong. Yeah.
I didn't know that this would be as Except you're not contentious right. an issue as like <laughs> Buffy's alternate mind universe, but <laughs> the question of what yes. Sam may or may not but know about Kara's true identity. <laughs> how much is in the eye? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, interesting. Uh, I don't. Let's just let's suffice to say that we can both agree that he does recognize that it's important because yes. Rosalind tells him it's important. Yes. How much he guesses based on her telling him that is up for debate. But yeah. there's that he it at least reaches a certain level of importance that he recognizes. Right. And and we both agree that it has gotten to and and exceeded that particular threshold. <laughs> Very diplomatic. Okay. Um, shall right. we move on? I think we, I think we spent the most time I, we, on that stupid question. I think we spent more than five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> we spent a good 15 okay. minutes on Sam's eyes. All right. So um, fortunately, we probably don't need to talk long about Baltar and Caprica 6. Okay. Oh, well, so generally, so that's that's the resistance. Yes. Now we're moving on to the Cylons. Yeah. Right. And And Cylon collaborators. Right. Um, so Baltar and Caprica Six. Um, yeah. Really, we just get like, I mean, primarily we just get that one scene of them in the uh, colonial one bedroom there, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, it all boils down to Baltar sort of laying on his thick uh, sarcasm, right? Mm -hmm. um, we don't need how to was, go how was your day right like like she's sort of giving some you know basic conversation if you want to mm -hmm. call it that even um right. you know or sort of sort of wrote responses and and things that you might say to someone in the morning and and so he right obviously is very disturbed about the fact that he was forced at gunpoint to uh you know sign these death warrants mm -hmm. um and basically just sort of rips her apart um and, right and like the, the inability to continue to pretend that any of this is normal right which um, maybe he was doing before like maybe there was some just sure keep my I, head down and pretend and but maybe he's past the point and so and, now his only recourse is sarcasm and misery right. and kind of dragging her into the misery with him and everything right um and not but like it's it's been a gradual process mm -hmm. apparently right and or, or at least an extended one and you know six says like four months of watching you slip further and further down as well of self self hatred and loathing so it obviously the death warrants are, is maybe like the the latest and probably the biggest maybe it's the the straw that's breaking his back but like mm -hmm. you get the sense like that there have been you know successive orders similar to this um probably having to do with like detentions like they said the mm -hmm. first thing they built was a prison right so you know you know, maybe something around that or, you know, or also around like the whole, um, 
graduation ceremony for the new Capricorn police and that kind of thing. Like, like there's just these things that keep happening and, you know, things that he's forced to sort of, uh, do or, or assist in, in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so like after all of this, like, you know, six is ready to just leave. Right. So, Mm -hmm. Um, she gets up and starts going and, and he sort of begs her to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, and she does. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, back to our conversation around true love earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Like, is, is, is this true love? <laughs> like, like, what is this? Like, what are they doing here? I right. I, it's, it's certainly not a happy relationship, you know, um, does true love always have to be happy or not? Like it's, you know, are, are they, you know, it's, it's hard to say. Um, well, and, and if they are in true love, this is not a situation in which that can really flourish. Right. Like, right. You don't like true love doesn't bloom when you're signing death warrants. Right. Like I'm just going to go out and throw that out as a, like a truism. And one of them is like, technically like the prisoner of the other one you know like there's a you know an imbalance of power here sure um Uh, but there's also so she chides him you know for sliding further and further down this well of self-hatred and loathing but like she kind of she she kind of is joining him there like like literally because he asked her not to leave but like also figuratively, like like mm-hmm. she doesn't seem all too happy, and maybe it was the look in her eye, <laughs> but but I feel like that unhappiness is with herself as much as it is with him. Sure. Right? Um. So so that uh yeah I don't know, um. Right. And she asks him like like that. There's that line, you know. Do, do you know what I've given up for you? Mm-hmm. Um. No, of course not. Like, he can't. He's right. not a Cylon. Right? So, like, he doesn't really know the level to which they're sort of all connected mm-hmm. um, as a model, like, as, as the six model, but also, you know, between models, too. It, intermodel as mm-hmm. well. Um, you know, how they, until she bashed in uh you know three's head there Mm -hmm. uh you know they all were pretty much of one accord and and now they're not right um and we get that right so um jumping to the cylon council um i'm jumping over three here for a minute Mm -hmm. um or five uh we get some of that um you know, idea of how hard things have become because like, like you get, um, three even saying like, uh, consensus used to be so easy, mm-hmm. right? Now look what they've done to us. Blaming the humans <laughs> for right. their inability to come to consensus, you know, anymore. And it's like, well, I mean, again, like, like you were just saying, like there's an imbalance of power here. It's not the humans who are causing things to change. It's you guys who are, right. you know, enforcing this uh, uh, occupation. And, 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 and it's, 
them who are changing. You know, like that's right, part right, of the right. discomfort is things used to be so simple and so easy and we knew the right answer and we all agreed on it. And that's not the case anymore. Now we all, we agree that the situation is crap, but we can't but they don't know what, what to, to do, do about it. it you know, well, And, and it was just sort of occurred to me here. So like in that council is also where we get Doral, you know, saying, well, you know, it's not too late. Like we could just leave and nuke everyone. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that's still an option. But also that sort of conflicts with what Baltar said before about like how he was talking with one of the Dorals and he had mm-hmm. this whole theory about, you know, sanitation. Right. Toilet paper, and like, right. Yeah. As long as you had, you know, lack of toilet paper, if people could only wipe their bums properly, there'd be a measurable uptick in the poll. So it's like, like these are our two options. Either we give people toilet paper or we nuke them. Right. Like that's and the absurdity. Are... And these are both coming from Dora. From the same, right, right, from the same model. Right. Possibly the same instance of the model. Sure. Um, yeah, so, like, it, it's that, you know, that absurdity of, like, like, obviously neither of these are good or sufficient solutions. Right. You know, like, neither of them actually fix the problem. Right. Um but these are the things that they're considering. Um, and then you have the whole, you know, you have Cavill who's, who's bitter about being left to die slowly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which seems to be like, like now that they know like what happens to Cylons, it's like, okay, we've, we've found a solution. Like we'll just disable you mm-hmm. so that like you, we will have time to, you know, sort of get away and, and do what we need to do. Right, which is um, kind of what Sharon does with, with right. the three as well. Right, um, which is interesting because, so the whole, uh, the criticism, right, is, you know, Cavill goes on his, oh, they left me in the hot sun with a bullet in my guts. And, you know, he, he tells about, like, how long it took him and how hard, you know, the skin's harder to break than you think. And, you know, so all gross. of this. Yeah, and, like, how how right so hashtag cylon problems right like how <laughs> how much worse his headaches are getting every time he, he regenerates resurrects yeah. Resurrect. yeah you know it's like uh okay right. but then but then there's the criticism of Doro looking at baltar and and um i didn't i didn't write down the quote exactly but you know whatever it was about how uh you know basically um you know humans are just jerks or whatever um I, what I, what's that quote do you did you have it um, oh no i didn't write it down but i know like oh you're just such a noble race or oh yeah a noble race something sarcastic like that yeah. <laughs> mine was very paraphrased apparently <laughs> um yeah like yeah very sarcastically calls them you know humans are a noble race well you have sharon doing the same exact thing mm-hmm. to a three at the end of the episode or near mm-hmm. the end of the episode right so Again, like, is this something you can blame on humans, or, or are, and I mean, not to mention all of the other atrocities that the Cylons have committed. Like, right. you know, here's someone who, in the same council, is, you know, being sarcastic about the nobility of the human race, and then threatening to nuke them all, or not even right. threatening, like, casually suggesting it in a way that suggests that he'd be perfectly fine doing it, mm-hmm. like. Yeah. mobility like who's who's talking like oh 
you mean you're saying this to uh the race that was utterly destroyed by you know your attack on the 12 colonies like again he like for doral not to see sort of the hypocrisy of that is a little ridiculous in a way but um not like i don't mean ridiculous like the writer shouldn't have had him say that but like from a character perspective like that's an absurd point of view when your solutions are toilet paper and nuclear bombs right you know it's not like you have a much nobler attitude (laughs) yourself and you can't okay maybe you can blame it on humans insofar as they like made cylon but like cylons have also presumably evolved and you know are now at a point where you know they're supposed to be better than humans or whatever at least in their own minds their own synthetic minds uh so yeah i don't yeah. i mean i don't i don't i sort of hit a wall here because i don't really have anywhere to go be beyond that but just seems kind of a, a strange thing yeah. for the world to kind of be taking all of these different positions well and in some ways i always feel like doral is maybe shows the the least in common with humans like and and part of it is his i mean the line about the toilet paper makes me laugh because it goes along with doral's like bureaucracy and everything of like well if if the living conditions were improved they wouldn't mind being occupied right so much and the poles are gonna be you know go up based on you know having toilet paper and everything like like when Doral and Jammer are talking, right? And he's like, oh, you know, visions of Cylons and humans working side by side on a farm, right? Like, <laughs> right. you know, this is... Right. Like, again, it's either that or nuking all of humanity. <laughs> right, death. and right, those extremes. It's either going to, like, it, it, it's it's kind of funny. And the, his, his answer is literally, well... If they don't respond to toilet paper, I don't know what else to do. So just drop, drop a bomb, yeah. and that's the end of it. Because if that doesn't get through to them, <laughs> nothing I, will. You know, nothing will. And that seems <laughs> to be his like his actual like understanding of you know humanity. At least so far that I've seen, I haven't seen any more yeah. subtle or deep insights typical, from from doral than that typical psychopathic pr guy exactly right? yeah <laughs> no he uh, is I, I kind of find doral pretty funny but um and maybe oh, yeah. it is no i mean it's that it's that juxtaposition a, a, of that yeah. a dark a dark yeah. dry sort yeah. of way i it, i do too like it, all right well it's not too late to drop a ball on him like right it, we can do that and i think it's it, it is the kind of extremity of those two poles that is you know right probably one of his more defining characteristics so um yeah okay so um we need to talk about three and we're over time so like yeah try to do it quickly yes um so in this episode we first see her having these dreams where you know there's like the little girl who's Hera, right um mm-hmm. and it's like black and white and it scares her whatever and so she goes to the oracle 
I don't do. Uh, I can't remember. Do we get her name or not, or is it just she's like? Uh, it's like Celloy or something like that. But I don't think okay. we see her again. So. So just um, a random oracle. A random who... oracle. Although Amanda Plummer, famous actress, so sure. You know, for you know, so they want. Even if she's not like gonna come back, I think just the fact that they cast a well-known actor to play her is like there's some significance, obviously. Um, you know, to her and and to her prophecies and what she has to say. Um, um right. So, uh, we get some conversation between three and the oracle. Um, and and you know, after after all this sort of like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing here, blah blah blah. Uh, the Oracle tells her basically, she, you know, I have a message for you. Um, the fruit born of two peoples is alive. Uh, a child named after the wife and sister of the all-knowing Zeus, blah, blah, blah. Hera lives. Um, you will hold her in your arms and you'll know for the first time what it is to feel true love. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the question is, is this... I mean, obviously, so so here's our true love, right? Not sexual or romantic love, but, you know, true love for something, for, you know, other than herself or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she also says you'll lose everything you've done here. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't like, okay, so she's going to hold Hera at some point and lose everything. Mm-hmm. and feel true love so that's um, those are the answers to her dream right <laughs> apparently well and it so i forget which of the previous episodes but there was the line about um where deanna said to caprica six like is the love of a man worth losing all of this and caprica six says you know if you'd ever experienced love you wouldn't have to ask that question. So, you know, to me, you know, a little setup for this scene, Um, you know, and again, at least with number three, you get a sense of, even if she hasn't experienced that love, there is some curiosity about it, Um, you know, and I think with her emotion, when the Oracle tells her this prophecy, you at least get a sense of that she wants to experience this, even if she hasn't before, or she's, it's something that she is actively looking for. I mean, you see in the rest of the episode, she's looking for Hera everywhere, um, you know, and trying to find out where she is. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that okay so she goes and talks to coddle um yeah which you know not too much there coddles his usual good self of oh i don't let contrasting with what happened to the cavil you know coddle says he doesn't let cylons suffer that's not what he does you know he's a doctor he takes care of people um and you know the the three is asking him questions about hera because now she's you know starting to doubt the story of what really happened. Um, Mm -hmm. 
There's a you know, conspiracy afoot. There is. Um, and as you pointed out, goes past the dog bowl. So a little reference to that. And, you and, know. And she knows the dog's name, right? Like this is. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not, it's not just. What is it? Luke, right? Something like dog. that. Um, I don't remember. So, which is interesting because like, it's not just like a random dog, right? Like this is. Actually, I find that moment with between her and the dog interesting because she's talking about like what she say uh you know oh we're all we're all just you know god's people in your eye or mm. whatever like you know like to the dog he can't tell the cylons and the humans apart mm-hmm. right and she also makes that reference of like the blood looking all the same so mm-hmm. which is interesting there because like she's also been someone who's wanted to oppress the humans more mm-hmm. right and so so there's also a disparity between her thoughts and actions or her seeming thoughts based on this stuff of like oh well we all seem to be the same mm-hmm. and so you know looking for Hera you know uh which Thinking back, so remember in the episode where we first saw her, right, where she was making the news documentary before we knew she was a Cylon, she had stumbled onto pregnant Sharon, right? Mm-hmm. And the tape was taken, but then she did like a switcheroo and then eventually made her way back to the other Cylon. Right. Um Right. Truly is a miracle from God. Isn't that what she says when she sees, you know, that the baby right. lived. And so, so just that there's like, she's had an interest in this child even way back then. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so hard to say, because like, again, that documentary she made, like was pretty, you know, pre like the whole point of the documentary was like understanding people in a new light, right? Mm-hmm. Like understanding the soldiers in a way that, you know, we maybe didn't understand them before and, and overcoming prejudice and yeah. uh, uh, preconceived notions and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, I just find it interesting that she's, like, those are the things that she's, right, she's talking to the dog about, you know, seeing everyone as the same and pointing to the blood as, like, it all looks the same, you know, to me kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and Coddle's sort of his cynical self and just kind of turns away, right? But, but like, I don't know, I just, I, I, I like her approach of, like, there seems to be something there of, like, you know, that there's a, there's an amalgamation that can happen, uh, mm-hmm. a, a fusing, or if you're, or I'm reading um, the confusion by uh, uh, Neil Stevenson, and and throughout the book, different characters talk to talk about things being confused and you know mm-hmm. fused together in that way, and to the point where they're one and um, and intermixed, and so uh, yeah, I don't know, I just like I think there's some stuff there that we're not like she has, she has some ways to go and work through and she's sort of in investigate, like 
you can also see her like this is her investigative journalist mode too right right of like trying to track down the truth behind the story mm -hmm. um yeah and no, she's that's not a good point she's not there yet like she doesn't she doesn't know the truth yet but she's she's trying to work her way to it right right um, right so even if she hasn't risen to something more enlightened and noble yet she's struggling towards that you can right. see her at least starting to question well, and 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 want to at least head in that direction even if she's not fully there yet or knows what it means right and and i didn't think of this earlier but that then makes perfectly good sense for her you know to be the one to say consensus used to be so easy because mm -hmm. she's kind of torn in her own mind and i kind mm -hmm. of feel like like you know assuming like all of the Cylons we see are like representative, right? Like, cause there's, I don't know what, we, we don't know how many of like each individual instance there is, mm -hmm. like how many different instances there are across. Right. Um, but we do know there are multiple ones, right? Cause there's like two Sharons who are distinct personalities right. and, and the sixes have distinct personalities. So like if they're polling like all the threes, like you can almost see it as being like, like maybe there's like a half and half, like, like they're right. sounding like, well, you know, this side, uh, uh, and then like the, the other half is like, well, I don't, you know, this, this side. <laughs> and so like, yeah, like you can see, I took a consensus there to mean consensus among the different uh, models, mm -hmm. but maybe that also means consensus within herself and within right. her own model, you know? Right. Um right. Well, again, we've got the Dorals, toilet paper or nukes. So, you know, sure. like, uh, right. But I feel like, I feel like that, that could that's come from different the same because, model. <laughs> right. Or right. the same like, that's instance the same of the instance. model. And, and right. like, I feel like he's presenting that as like, right. Both options are equally. Sure. Okay. Right. Whereas, right. Whereas this is like a genuine dilemma. Right, of, like of within the the Deanna's, they don't know which way. Right, and and yeah. that there is, that there is a right way. Like it's not like right. with Doral, it's like either one is fine, either one is right. as legitimate, right, as the other, and and it doesn't matter. But like with Deanna, uh, it feels more like you know, she just doesn't know which one is right, but that there is a right option. And right. that's the struggle is, is figuring out which one actually is sort of objectively correct. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so yeah. yeah. Anyway. So we spent more than five minutes on her as well. We did. Uh. <laughs> and I guess, I guess suffice to say that she uses that information to try to tempt Sharon Agathon um, right which it doesn't work at least not yet like she may have planted a seed but at least in the short term Sharon keeps her promise to Hilo and remains loyal right. to uh with with that that right so we get a moment where you know like in in television it's like whenever you say a certain thing you know it's gonna go the opposite way right like Adama right. would never lie to me yeah. You know. Right. Well. Yeah. Right. Yes, that is dramatic irony, not especially subtle dramatic irony, but um Right. Um, um but 
Yeah, and, the, the seed the is question planted, is, you know. Yeah. How much does she actually believe that? Who knows, you know? Right, right. We can look again, at her eyes all we want. We may again, not be able to tell. At least for the moment, she, you know, chooses loyalty, even if she has her doubts now because she goes and asks Tyrrell right. about, you know, did you actually see the ashes and everything? Um. So... All right. Well, let's yeah. maybe quickly go through the rest of this. I think yeah. we should be able to keep it pretty short. Yeah. Um, Starbuck apologizes to Casey, who yeah. totally does not appreciate the apology. Uh, Grown-ups <laughs> do stupid things sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Casey grabs her finger in the way that you know, all right, if Kara wasn't totally sold, she is now, you know? Right. Like, right. This that, is the heart-melting in- moment. In the in that endearing way that means she's totally hooked on the kid and everything. Um, and Leoben's yeah, this... Leoben's uh, plan has, you know, of forming this attachment has totally, you know, right. uh, succeeded. So it's well, and <laughs> I never thought of it this way before. But it's like, like there's that sort of stereotype or trope or whatever you want to call it of like the woman who wants to, you know, become pregnant to trap the man, right. To entrap the Mm -hmm. guy. And so like, this is Leo, Leo sort of twisted, you know, uh, version of that. Right. Right. Like we stole your uterus and I inseminated, you know, an egg and right now we have a kid together. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, And yeah. And, um, you know, yeah, at like, least like, as far as as at least as far as the kid is concerned, it's it's working. You know, right? And and it's that thing too of like the child's innocent. Like the child didn't do anything, right. Right. and it's totally. Well, we think again. I keep going back to that moment of. Did, did he push Leo Ben push her down the stairs? Well, no, right. and I sorry, uh, I said that deceptively. I don't think. Like I don't think uh, uh, Casey like threw herself down the stairs or anything. Right. But no. like, like I don't think she's complicit in any way. But like, there is that question of like, yeah, like is this was this actually even Kara's fault, or mm-hmm. like, yeah, is it just Leoben again being manipulative, manipulative, right? Um, you know, of in using Casey in this way, right? Yep. But we all get caught up in our own little world mm. until it's almost too late. Anyway, all right. So moving on uh, to the Galactica. Yeah. Last last stage here because uh, this is where we end. So um, interesting little ceremony. Like, I like how we get from time to time like little pieces of their like religious culture or mm-hmm. or like like it's even like it's that blend between like religion and state almost because like mm-hmm. even like in america like okay we have like separation of church and state but we still have like there's still like the national you know chapel or whatever and there's right. still like invocations at state functions of right you know where you have like people praying and Right. Um, well, and there's like religious language as part of like the Pledge of Allegiance or, right. you know. Right. So there's not, so like, yeah, there's not really, there's no, 
date religion per se, but there's still a lot of like sort of ceremony that taps into or or even outright, you know, takes from religion. Um, and so like you get a sense that this is this is one of those things, right? And you're not quite sure is it a is it a so like I know um my brother was in the Navy and I know one of the things that they do um is your first time when you cross the equator, they have like certain rituals that they make all the newbies, you know, doing I they call them like polywogs or something like that. Like th- there's like certain rituals where that, you know, they make them I don't know. I I forget even like what my brother said they had to do, but just stupid, mm-hmm. like stupid hazing kind of stuff. Right, right. And you get the sense that this is almost along those lines. Obviously, more like serious and mm-hmm. you know uh, impactful than than that kind of thing. But this, like, that it could be like one of those things where it's like when you have like two battle stars parting, like they do this mm-hmm. kind of thing where again you have like you know, you're dividing the lines, but then, you know, you're intermingling and going your mm-hmm. separate ways and, and all of that kind of thing. And, and I like sort of the symbolism of that and, and the, I'm not big on ceremony myself, but I do kind of find it fascinating to see mm-hmm. like, even in, in fictional cultures, mm-hmm. you know, like those types of things um, that, that they do. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't have any, particular insight other than to just say i kind of like that that moment and the opportunity to to observe that mm-hmm. um, right and and the kind of reading from their scripture and everything um you right. know a passage that's you know uh significant to the situation and everything um and i think the use of like whether or not it's always this they use like salt or something as you know like because sometimes in our own cultures, salt can have significance of like, you sure. know, lines of salt can be protection against, you know, spirits or, you know, you know, magical forces and things. And so, again, right. some there's sort of, sort of a mystical or, or supernatural right. component to, you know, having that division or right, right, right. But then it's a division that gets like blended and wiped away as they cross over it. So again, like kind of a mix of kind of high religion, you know, kind of then mystical sort of paganist, you know, pagan magic. And then with some kind of official state ceremony thrown in all kind of mixed into one, you know, Mm -hmm. tradition. So, um, which is not, unlike some of our own traditions. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, other than that, I mean, most of it is, like, you know, for the minor characters, you know, of, like, D and Hilo and Racetrack and all them are kind of sitting yeah. around waiting. Like, you just get the sense of anticipation of, right. you know, um, you know, the, the last they're ready to go and they're just waiting for the signal and they're kind of, you know, itching in their seats to get back into action. Um, other than that, you know, it's, it's Adama's big speech at the end, which, you know, it, it ends with Hilo saying, you know, stand by to combat jump. And that's the end of the episode is, 
you know, ready right. for combat. So that kind of lets you know what the second half of this episode will be. Um, sure. But yeah, I mean, Adama's speech is, you know, without going through every detail, it's, he, you know, Lee seems to presume that this is a suicide mission. We're not going to see you again, you know, wish you wouldn't go through with it, but doing as he's told. Whereas um, if Adama might believe that too, but that's not the way he's talking to his crew. His message is one of, you know, there's only one end of this and that's success. So don't go into it thinking that it's a suicide mission. You have to go into it, you know, presuming that we've already won and that this is a story that's going to be handed down through the generations of how sort of brave and, you know, resourceful you all were. Right. Um, we're, we're all stories in the end. Right. <laughs> Just make it a good one. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, you've served with such men and women as the universe has never seen. So putting themselves up with the great scriptures that they're sort of drawing from and everything. Um, so, yeah. I think that's all kind of I had. Is there any other we went over, but anything else uh, you wanted to point no. out? Nope. Like you said, we're we're primed and ready to go for the next episode and uh yeah and and again we'll be we'll be sticking with angel for a few weeks here so sit back and enjoy yep all right sounds good see you then mm -hmm.